historians point to the date of October 31st, 1517 as the formal beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so the last Sunday in October is referred to as Reformation Sunday. Now that's not printed anywhere in your bulletins, but it is a kind providence of God that our text today is Romans 1, 16 and 17. We do plan the preaching calendar well in advance here at CBC, but this was not something that we orchestrated. This we will chalk up to the providence of the Lord, that a verse like Romans 1.17 that was very pivotal in the Protestant Reformation would be the text that we would consider this morning. People sometimes ask, you know, we're 500 years on the backside of the Reformation as it's formally recognized. People ask, is Reformation still needed today? It's a big question. But here is how I would begin to answer it. In the Reformation, under the providence of God, there was a recovery of the gospel. A gospel that had been, for the better part of a thousand years, obscured by bad theology, by bad doctrine. In the Reformation, there was a recovery of a biblical understanding of the sufficiency of Christ for the entirety of salvation, not just a part of it. And in the Reformation, there was a recovery of the biblical doctrine of assurance that saints can know that we know that we know that we have peace with God now and forever. And we must continue to contend for all of those things. We must continue to be clear on all of those things. You see, it's always man's tendency. So even in the church, it is always man's tendency to move away from these truths regarding Christ and the gospel. The centuries since the Reformation have shown this to be true. And often, you see, the movement, the shift, is subtle. The most damaging shifts occur subtly over a long time. You see, shifts that are dramatic and rapid, they don't gain traction amongst the faithful. But subtle shifts do, often. This is not typical, what I'm about to do. But my purpose in communicating what I'm about to say for the next several minutes is to help us understand how important the things that we're going to talk about today from Romans 1 are. So lest we think that what we're going to consider today is not something that we need to continue to fight for, consider this. There was a video sent to me this past week by a number of people of a relatively prominent theologian and pastor who was answering the question, what doctrine is most missing in preaching today? What doctrine is most missing in preaching today? His answer was that the doctrine most absent, most missing, is the doctrine of the new birth. Now that sounds good. It's a biblical doctrine, but listen to where he goes with this. 
I'm going to quote this man who I trust is our brother in Christ at some length. Quote, when you begin to preach the new birth and what are the necessary evidences of the new birth, people begin to examine their lives. This takes it to a whole other level of self-examination, of careful thought about their own soul. In a sense, justification by faith alone is just paperwork in heaven. It does nothing to change your life. It simply changes your status or your standing in heaven before God as you are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Insertion. He at least understands what justification is, but says that it's paperwork in heaven. Won't change your heart, won't change your life. He continues on. However, regeneration, the new birth, dramatically and radically changes your life from the inside out and does so immediately. You would know if you've been born again, the dramatic change and transformation that has taken place in your life. Regeneration is something that is an experiential reality in a person's life. You should know if this has happened in your life, close quote. He goes on to speak of George Whitfield, a revivalist during the First Great Awakening as it's known. Whitfield, he says, was always preaching on the new birth. And one time a woman came up to him and asked him, why are you always preaching on the new birth? To which Whitfield responded, because, dear woman, you must be born again. The speaker in the video goes on to say that if he were speaking to a group of people that he perceived to be religious but unconverted, he would preach the new birth, not justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So what do we make of all that? I'm going to be restrained in my comments. I want to use bad words about how bad that is. This truth mixed with error. And as has been said before, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. So here are a few thoughts on that video before we look to Romans 1. Not exhaustive, but a few. We should absolutely preach the new birth. Life given by God to dead sinners. God says live and we live. He gives us new hearts as we praise Him for today. Praise the Lord that's true. If this gentleman had said that union with Christ is the doctrine most missing today, I would agree, most likely. Union with Christ and what that means for the believer, for justification, for sanctification, and eternal life. Next thought. You must be born again is not the gospel. And, with all due respect, people are born again precisely through the preaching of Christ. And if you are preaching to people you think are religious but unconverted, you first preach the law to crush self-righteousness and blindness. And then you preach Christ. 
You don't just say you must be born again. Jesus, when he speaks to Nicodemus and tells him you must be born again, and Nicodemus doesn't understand, Christ goes on to say, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him right, might live. We cannot reverse engineer the transformation of life. It is God wrought the transformation of life. A work of God in and through us by virtue of our union with Christ by faith. So all that by way of introduction. What we're going to talk about today matters. Clarity on these things matter. It matters. The battle for these truths, beloved, is never over this side of the resurrection. So let's look to the scripture. We've made our way through Paul's introduction to the letter to the Romans in the last two messages. And today we're getting into now effectively the the body of the letter. But these two verses are going to serve as a kind of thesis statement for what comes after. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Listen now as I read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God, and we thank him for his word today and every day. Four big points contained within these two verses. Three things from verse 16 that we're going to consider. These will kind of serve as our headers as we go through. Three things from verse 16. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. We're going to think about that. What does that mean? Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Secondly, because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. We're going to think about that. He says that is true to the Jew first And then also to the Greek, to the Gentile. We're going to think about that. So that's the three parts from verse 16. And then finally, verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith unto faith, from faith unto faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're going to take verse 17 as kind of its own point. And we'll have a brief conclusion. That's our plan for today. Let's look to verse 16. First header. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean? Remember, as we've thought about, there are both Jews and Gentiles in the church of Rome. On the Gentile side of this equation, think with me. Christians, by pagan Gentiles of the day, Christians were regarded as atheists. You understand this? Because they denied the pantheon of gods, right? They were monotheists. They believed in the one true and living God and were therefore ridiculed by their pagan neighbors. But that's not all we can say with respect to the Gentiles. The message of the cross of Christ is what? Foolishness to the Gentiles. A God who would take on human flesh and die in the place of his people in order to reconcile them to himself? It's craziness. 
The Gentile view of the gods was that man existed to serve them and please them and appease them and all these things. Not a God who would take on flesh to rescue. This is lunacy, right? Foolishness to the Gentiles. That this God would take on flesh and suffer and die. So that's the Gentile piece. But then on the Jewish side, why is Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, the gospel, if it's foolishness to the Gentiles, it was a stumbling block, right, to the Jews. Paul knew this well. He too used to stumble over the stumbling stone who is Jesus Christ. He too used to pursue righteousness under the law with great zeal. This is what he writes of the Jews in general, beginning in Romans 9 and verse 30. Listen to these words. What shall we say then? And he answers that question. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As a Pharisee, Paul had lived a life of great zeal and great conformity to the written code of the law. We're going to look at Paul's own words about this in just a moment, but Paul's going to testify like, guys, I was a rock star Pharisee. I was crushing it. Can't do any better than the way I did it. But now he renounces not his vice, but his virtue. The virtue that he thought he had, he renounces it all in order that he might have a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And he rejoices now to herald Christ and his righteousness that is given to sinners. Listen to Paul's own words. This is from Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the circumcision party. Those who would require circumcision and works of the law as a piece of righteousness before God. For we, says Paul, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, 
blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I am not ashamed of that gospel. So that's first piece. Amen? Amen. Second piece of verse 16. Paul goes on. He says, he's going to continue talking about it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for, he's going to continue his argument, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We thought about this in our opening message. The gospel is the wondrous mystery that has been hidden for ages in God, but had now been revealed concerning God's son, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus had descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power at his resurrection. This message, this eternal plan of God is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the efficacious means. Efficacious meaning it accomplishes its goal. It's effective The gospel is the efficacious means through which God saves his people. The gospel is the efficacious means through which God delivers humanity from sin and misery and gives them eternal life. The gospel is the efficacious means through which God destroys the dominion of Satan and the tyranny of death. The gospel... The mystery of Christ is something of which the prophets wrote and something into which the angels longed to look. All right, how does verse 15 end? We like to read things in their context, right? To understand. This is important. How does verse 15 end? The verse right before verse 16, right? Paul says there, that he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. So when he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, what he clearly has in view is the preaching, the proclamation of that gospel. He's not talking about the gospel in these just kind of ethereal terms. He's not talking about some kind of secret inward revelation, some kind of higher plane of knowledge. He is talking about the vocal preaching of the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The apostles greatly valued the preaching and the hearing of the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1. For those who are curious, verse 18 and verses 22 to 24. What does Paul write there? For the word of the cross, right? The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice that it is the gospel received by faith that is the power of God unto salvation. How often we short sell this reality even in the church. The gospel is not the power of God unto part of salvation. The gospel is not the power of God unto the beginning of salvation. And then, like, the rest of it is empowered by something else. No, it is the power of God for the whole thing. We'll talk about this more in a minute. How do we know how to live? The law. What guides the Christian life? Sanctification. The law. What empowers it, though? There's only one answer. Christ. The preaching of Christ in union with Christ by faith empowers sanctification by the Spirit. That's the only answer. So I'm thinking, right? I I can't help but think about the video that I saw this week that effectively the gospel justification by faith on account of Christ alone has no power to change us. It's paperwork. And that what we need to do is preach something else in order to see transformation of life actually happen. Because the gospel, the preaching of Christ won't do that. won't change anybody. We preach Christ and we preach the law. Christ is the power. The law is the guide. How do we know how to live? Hear this. How do we know how to live? The law of God. Romans 7, 7. We don't have to leave the letter. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That matters. But then, how? How are we changed? How are we strengthened to conform our lives to that law? Again, we don't have to leave the letter of Romans to start. Romans 16, 25 to 27. Just listen. This is the doxology at the end. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, how? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Come on with it. That's a good word, right? According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations. When the gospel is heralded, when Christ is preached, when the mystery of God in Christ is made plain, or as Calvin, John Calvin would say, when the power and the office of Christ is explained to us, when the mercy and grace of Christ is extolled to us, that is how disciples are confirmed in the faith. 2 Corinthians 3, 14-18. 
Paul's writing of being a minister of the new covenant in contrast with the old covenant. He writes of how Moses put a veil over his face. You remember this. For when Moses would speak, he would meet with the Lord, he would put a veil over his face to then speak to the Israelites. But Paul is making the argument, we don't operate like that now in the new covenant. He says, Paul does, of the Israelites, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. He goes on. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. There's some good Trinity verses, right? The deity of the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold the Lord, we are transformed. Ephesians 1, 16 to 20. Paul prays for the Ephesians in those verses. He prays that they would know the hope to which they've been called that they would know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Track with me. Paul writes of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. It is none other than the same power that raised Christ from the dead. But do you notice how it is that that power of God, resurrection power of God is at work in us? Faith. Faith, beloved. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of God is at work in you. You want to talk about some verses to understand and think well about the transformation of life? That's one. This is because faith is the means through which God's people are united to Jesus. In being in union with Christ, we are sanctified. We are conformed increasingly into his image. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not just the beginning, the entire thing. Put it another way. The gospel brings the transformative power of God to bear in the lives of believers. So in other words, you want transformed lives? Preach Jesus. Herald Christ and his excellencies and use the law lawfully? Transformation happens. That's the second header. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Last part of verse 16, final header here. To the Jew first, and also the Greek. When you read Greek, just understand Gentile, right? The nations, non-Jews. You know this, that God worked primarily through Israel for an era of redemptive history. To them belonged the oracles of God, Romans 3.2. And the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, 
the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's Romans 9, 4 to 5. Jesus, when he came, he said that he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Before he ascended to heaven, he told his apostles that forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name, beginning in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And it has always been God's plan to save the nations through the promised redeemer that came from Israel. These are both true. Genesis 12, 3. We know this because Paul helps us understand it better in his letter to the Galatians that the gospel was preached to Abraham. That the nations would be blessed through him. They would be blessed through his offspring. Offspring singular. Christ. Psalm 2.8 The father says to the son, the Christ, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isaiah 11 Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 42, 1 to 7, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, says the Father. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, the ends of the earth, wait for his law. I am the Lord. I have called you, the Lord says to the servant. In righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? You know the words of Simeon, the devout man in the temple, when Jesus was brought there as an eight-year-old baby, or eight-day-old baby. Lord, says Simeon, holding the Christ in his arms, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. To the Jew first and also the Greek. And then, as if there's any debate about this left, there's the end of the story, the end of the book. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Worthy are you. People are saying this, shouting this to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, says John, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. To the Jew first and also the Greek. It's always been the plan. God is 
saving a remnant of Israel. He's clear about this in his word. The ones he had always planned to save, he is saving. Romans 11.2, Paul says, Of the Israelites, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And the Gentiles, the nations, that's basically everyone in this room, we are grafted in. We are grafted in to the plan of God's salvation. So that's verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Let's turn now with our attention to verse 17. Let's talk first about the language of the verse. In particular, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Your translation probably says something like from faith, for faith. I'm going to, I don't do this often, but I'm going to suggest some better renderings of that. Could read from faith unto faith. Could be understood beginning and ending in faith. So in other words, how do you understand in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed Common speech, entirely of faith. All of faith, or faith alone, as one might say. Beginning and ending in faith, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. From faith unto faith. Now when the text says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. When you look at the words and you take it in its context, the entire sentence, it's very clear that a divine attribute is not what's being talked about here. This is not saying the fact that God is righteous is being revealed in the gospel. That's not the point of the verse. Now, the fact that God is righteous is revealed throughout the scriptures. No argument about that. But that's not what this verse is saying. What is meant here is something else. It's clear. We see this because the righteousness of God that the gospel reveals is from faith unto faith, and that is not how divine attributes are talked about in the Scripture. Regardless of any human interaction, divine attributes are absolute, right? You understand this. This is not the way an attribute of God is described. Something else is being revealed, being discussed here. The way we should understand this is that the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is a righteousness that God gives to sinners by faith. To be more precise, it is the righteousness of Christ that God gives to sinners beginning and ending in faith, entirely by faith. The gospel reveals a righteousness which God not only gives to sinners, but it reveals a righteousness of which he approves. The scriptures help us to understand that this righteousness given to sinners in the gospel is precisely the righteousness which the law requires. You understand this, right? The gospel would not be the power of God unto salvation if it did not reveal a righteousness that God gives to sinners that he accepts. Pretty epic thought as you're processing this. This righteousness that the gospel reveals, God purposed this righteousness in eternity past. He promised 
this righteousness immediately after the fall, Genesis 3.15. And he revealed this righteousness definitively in the coming of Christ in the new covenant. Paul also is going to cite Habakkuk 2.4 at the end of this verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith unto faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. What's the context there in Habakkuk 2.4? In the Lord's providence, we considered this not long ago as a church. But just by way of review, or if you're new. You remember the prophet Habakkuk? He comes to the Lord. He raises complaints to God. His first one, he says, the spiritual and moral condition in Judah is a disaster. Lord, this is bad. Are you going to do anything? Do you see what's going on? Are you going to act? How many times do I need to come to you about this? To which the Lord responds, I'm going to act. I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe if I told you. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, as an instrument of, of my judgment on Judah. To which Habakkuk responds like, yeah, I don't know about that, right? That's worse than the disease, it sounds like, to me, because they are far more wicked than we are, and you're holy. To which God responds again. He says, I'm going to execute justice. He's going to do what's right. He effectively says that judgment will come on the Babylonians. But he's very clear. It might take time. Wait for it. It will happen. At the appropriate time, it will happen. And then the Lord contrasts the wicked, the Babylonians, and the righteous. The wicked are puffed up. They're full of pride. They're full of conceit. They trust in themselves and worship their own strength. But the righteous, he says, shall live by faith. Faith in what? In the Lord and in his promise. His word to his people is that I've made a promise. It will come to fruition at the appropriate time. And in the meantime, the righteous will live by faith in me and by what I've said I'll do. This rings of Genesis 15, 6, right? The righteous are those who live by faith, by trust in the Lord and the promises that he's made. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Just as Abraham rejoiced to see the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and he saw it by faith and was glad, so too the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham believed the promise of the gospel and righteousness was counted to him. This is why he's held up as a model of how God saves his people. Because this has always been how the righteous live. Faith in God's promises, realized in Messiah, is how people have always been counted just in the sight of God. The apostles understood that. They understood the Old Testament that way. That is why Paul cites Habakkuk 2.4 as he does in our text today. Before we conclude, let's talk some unequivocal biblical truth. And you might be saying, una what? Unequivocal, meaning there's no obscurity here. This is not debatable. This is crystal clear. And these are things that we must hold dear as a congregation. No fallen man, so no son or daughter of Adam, in and of himself is righteous in the sight of God. Next, no fallen man can make himself righteous. He cannot attain the righteousness the law requires and that is necessary for acceptance before God. 
This is because the law demands perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And no fallen human has ever rendered that. No one ever will render that because no one can. And so it is obvious that no flesh, no fallen human being can be justified before God by works of the law. Fallen human beings are not justified by our own righteousness. And yet, here's the great tension. You should feel this. And yet, righteousness is absolutely necessary for justification. And righteousness is absolutely necessary for final salvation. And not your half-hearted, mixed righteousness, perfect righteousness is required. Which is why the greatest news in the world is that it is precisely such a righteousness that the gospel reveals. It is precisely such a righteousness that the gospel reveals, that God gives this righteousness to sinners on account of Christ received by faith. A righteousness that is not of works, a righteousness that is not our own, it is Christ's, a righteousness which is the free gift of God, and a righteousness that is from God, which is counted to sinners. Beloved, we say this a lot, but may it never be lost on us. May this never just be something we yawn at. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. Now and before the throne. Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. That's pretty comprehensive. It is in Christ alone that we are righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that what? In him we might become the righteousness of God. Saints, Christ is all. And he is enough. You hear us say that a lot too. Christ is enough. We don't mean anything sentimental by that. We don't mean anything just kind of sappy about that. There's no like Jerry Maguire, you know, Christ completes us nonsense. It's not what we're talking about. When we say that Christ is enough, we mean he's enough for forgiveness and enough for righteousness and enough for bodily resurrection, enough for peace with God today and every day and forever. He is able to save everyone who draws near to God through him. We sing, all we have is Christ. And that's pretty handy because it turns out he's all we need. Now, brother, if you talk like this, are people going to live holy lives? This is the only way in the world people ever would. May our hearts swell with thanksgiving and gratitude. 
and praise. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. When we consider wretched men and women that we are, who will rescue us? Thanks be to God for him. And thank God for this gospel. I'm going to say one or two, well, maybe two or three things. I want to be honest here. Very clearly. Before the conclusion. Okay, just track with me. These comments that I'm about to make are about precision. Doctrine matters. Okay? There is such a thing as dead orthodoxy, being overly concerned about right doctrine and not being concerned about how we live. That's an error that can be made, and doctrine matters. Precision matters all the time, and certainly when we're talking about these things. And even as I'm going to make some very precise theological statements, as we glory in Christ and as we rejoice over the gospel, may we think well. The heart and the mind are involved in this. Okay, listen carefully. First statement. I'm going to say this slowly so you can hear it. The righteousness that the gospel reveals is an imputed righteousness, meaning it's counted to you and me. It is the righteousness of Christ that is counted to sinners as our whole and only righteousness received by faith. Whole meaning our entire righteousness. Only meaning we don't have any other kind. You hear me? When it comes to our standing before the Lord, Next statement, again, with clarity. Our righteousness is always an alien righteousness, meaning it is not ours inherently. It is Christ's, and it is counted to us, given to us. Why does that matter? If we were more aware of church history and the errors that have been made through the centuries, we would be better equipped to answer that question. Why does that precision about an alien righteousness matter so much? Well, because it was the teaching of the Church of Rome for a millennium, effectively, the teaching of the medieval church, that what happens is that we are infused with righteousness. Yes, Jesus, yes, faith, yes, grace, all of that, but we are infused with righteousness and become, process, become righteous enough inherently that we can stand before the Lord. That's not the gospel revealed in the scripture. We are always, this is why we talk this way, we are always looking outside of ourselves, away from us to Christ for righteousness, right? It is only in him where we will find righteousness that will stand in the judgment. A righteousness that justifies us before God now and before the throne at the end of history. We stand in Christ alone, never in ourselves, never in some kind of inherent righteousness that we have had a part in making. Christ's righteousness alone. Let's conclude. I want us to consider Christ together for a few moments. Think of your Savior. First, let's think of him together as our representative. The fact that he represented us. This principle of representation is significant in the scripture. We know that Adam represented us all in the garden. We understand that through Adam's sin, 
we all sinned. And in Adam's ruin, we were all ruined, born into his corruption. But just as Adam represented all mankind in the garden, by faith, we are united to Christ. And being united to Christ means, amongst other things, that he is now our representative. Through faith, to use the language of the scripture, we are found in him. And Jesus represents before the Father. Jesus represents at the judgment seat all of those who are found in him. What did he do as our representative? Well, first, he made satisfaction for our sins. Satisfaction meaning several things. He atoned for our sins. He satisfied the justice of God for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. It's important that we understand that he did not make satisfaction for his own sin because he did not have any. Being sinless, he could actually die for others. And being truly man, he could die for men. Consider him in the Garden of Gethsemane. His last night on earth before his crucifixion. He had already been betrayed by Judas, and a mob would be coming for him imminently. Do you remember him there? God the Son incarnate. The one through whom all things were made. The God-man. Laid on his face, praying to the Father. His sweat, we read, was like drops of blood. So great was the anguish of this moment. He was greatly troubled. He said to Peter, James, and John, his closest companions while he was on earth, he said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Why do you think was Jesus wrecked like he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Was it that he feared crucifixion? Was it that he feared death? I mean, no doubt that was a thing as a human being. In the humanity of our Savior, I'm sure that was a piece. But there was a whole lot more to it. Many a martyr, saints have gone singing to their execution. So what was going on with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, he was warped out of his frame because he, more than anyone, knew what was about to happen. He was about to take upon himself the sin of the world. Yours. Mine. All the horrible things that we felt, thought, craved, done, said. The corruption of our nature. He was going to take all of that on himself and bear the wrath of God against it, satisfy the justice of God due to it. He was then beaten, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was nailed to a cross. His death was horrific. And even more than that, more than the cross and the nails and the beatings and all that, you understand that his death was a cursed death. That matters. Cursed be everyone 
who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What does that mean? That means that you and I, born into this world, are under a curse. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, what? Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He died the way he died because it was a cursed death. He died for the cursed ones. He died the death that lawbreakers deserve. He did it for us. He did it as our substitute and our representative so that the cursed ones might go free. So he did that. But as our representative, he lived a life of holiness and righteousness. And his holiness and righteousness are given to us. We've talked about these things recently, so I won't labor them now. But his words to John the Baptist at his baptism, it's appropriate that we do this, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Jesus was righteous. He did everything he did for you and for me. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness as a second Adam. Tempted like the first one. But unlike the first one, he was victorious. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He was born of woman, born under the law, and was always obedient. And through his obedience, the many are counted righteous. Question. How are we righteous before God? There's not a bigger question in the world that could be asked. How are we righteous before God? To which we answer only by faith in Jesus Christ. Even though our consciences accuse us of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of our own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if we had never sinned nor been sinners and as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. All we need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. That's the answer. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Yes, it will. He kept his father's every word. The law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured. All this and more he earned for me. Because his righteous life is mine and all his merits now I own. I am a child of God on high. I'm adopted, loved, and known. So we are. Let's pray.